So I wonder if you can guess what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> There's a farmer out in the fields one day. He was helping a cow give birth. And um, he was, as he was helping this calf come out, he saw his son on the fence, kind of wide-eyed, looking at what all was unfolding in front of him. And uh, the farmer thought to himself, fantastic, this is my opportunity to teach my son the facts of life. So he helped the calf come out. And then uh, he just went over to his son and he decided he wasn't going to say anything. He was just going to wait for the son to ask questions. And the son didn't ask a question, but it wasn't the question he expected. He said, Dad, how fast was that calf going when it ate the cow? Some of you didn't get that, but that was quite funny if you think about it. Just to rest assured, if you're visiting with us, this is not our standard subject on a Sunday. We have talked about this on and off, and it is a very important subject. But it is important, and the Bible talks about it, and Jesus speaks about it, so we're going to speak about it. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at this great sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said some very pointed, challenging things on the whole subject of sex, and we're going to talk about them. It's important. Um, Let me ask you, in the last 24 hours, have you thought about the Old Testament covenants? Hands up if you've thought about the Old Testament covenants in the last 24 hours. Nutters. Wow. How how many of you in the last 24 hours have thought about communion or the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Okay, a few more of you. Let me ask you, how many of you in the last 24 hours have thought about sex? Hands up. How many are lying? (laughs) Hands up. Okay, we think about it often, therefore it's something we need to address in church. It's a big subject. Jesus said an awful lot about it. This week we're going to look at the whole subject of lust. Next week we're going to be looking at uh, the impact of lust on society, looking at divorce and such like. And the week after that we're going to be looking at how to overcome sexual addiction and other addictions. Jesus gives us many principles in these verses we're going to be looking at. So we're going to be tackling different bits of the verses, although we'll probably read them all today. Let me first start off by talking about many people's misconceptions about what Christianity has to say about sex. Religion's view of sex has typically been that sex is dirty, rotten, and vile, so save it for the one you love most. And this has been reinforced by many Christian leaders. Tertullian and Ambrose said that they would prefer the extinction of the human race than continued sexual intercourse. I don't think they meant, like, non-stop. I think they meant, like, continuation of the... Oregon, that's Oregon, uh, was so convinced about the evils of sexual pleasure that he actually took a knife and castrated himself. Boy. Jerome often threw himself into bramble bushes when he caught himself desiring uh, women sexually. That might be something you want to try there, guys. Just carry it. In the city, it's not so easy to carry a bramble bush with you and you can whip yourself. Augustine, who had been very sexually active prior to his conversion, uh, decided that sex within marriage was not sinful, but lust and the passion passion associated with it was sinful. It's like, go and swim, but don't get wet. You know, don't let the water touch you. It's also been the case that down through the ages, the Catholic Church has taken quite a radical stance on sex. It viewed, especially in the 15th century, that it viewed uh, sex within and without marriage was both evil. Priests were forbidden from marrying. The church began to actually limit the days at which people could have sex. It got to the point where literally half the year you couldn't have sex. They published calendars. You can collect your calendars on the way as you're leaving today. We've, we've published them for you just to keep you all on track. Thomas Aquinas taught that sex was only 
for the purpose of procreation. Alexander Wilcock well summed up religion's view on sex when he said, all the things I really like to do are either immoral, illegal, or fattening. (laughs) But what is the Bible's view on sex? The Bible's worldview is this, that there is a God who created everything. And when you look at how God created everything and everyone, you can draw conclusions about this God. Romans tells us that we can understand great things about God by just looking at the things he's made. So you look at how God has created us, and we can draw conclusions. Very frankly, he has made your sex organs. He made the penis and made the clitoris. The sole purpose of the clitoris in the woman is orgasm. There is no other purpose for that part in the body. People who have a purely evolutionary viewpoint in life would find that very hard to explain because survival of the fittest wouldn't result in parts of your body that are purely there for pleasure. And yet there is a God in heaven who made a part of your body solely for the purpose of pleasure. What does that say about that kind of God? You certainly couldn't conclude that God must be therefore against sexual pleasure. You couldn't conclude that. Furthermore, as a man and a woman make love, a chemical is released, a hormone is released, it's called the love hormone or oxytocin. This is released into people's systems, and what it does is it creates a bond, a bonding between two people that wasn't there before. It actually gives them a huge, overwhelming sense of commitment to the other person. God did that in our bodies. Why? Because he designed sex never to be something that you have with one person, then another person, then another person. Even in the way you're physically made, you were designed to make love and then to be bonded to that person for the long term. Even in the natural creational order, that's how God's made things. Then if we go into the Bible, you find that in the Bible there's a book, the Song of Solomon. The only reason for its existence, well, it says a lot of great things about God and his purpose, but on a practical level, it is there, it's a book, a book, book, devoted to, you might book if you read it, it is a book (laughs) devoted to sexual pleasure. And interestingly, in the Song of Solomon, there is not one reference to having children. So the idea that sex is purely for procreation is contradicted by the Bible. Because there's a book in the Bible, it's all about sex, and it's all about the joy, and the love, and the delight, and the build-up to sex. In the, in the Song of Solomon, you see French kissing, you see fondling, you see foreplay, you see the whole erotic, beautiful, within-marriage scene of sex that God created, and God actually wants us to delight in. God has no problem with sex. God made it. Religion has sadly distorted things to the point where people, many concludes that God is against sex. No, no, God created sex and God is for you. He has his confines in which sex should happen within marriage, but he thinks it's good. He made it. Now with these things in mind, let's go into what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He defines adultery for us. Matthew chapter five, verses 27 to 28. Jesus said, you've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks for a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery is a major subject. We often see it appearing in the newspapers, on the tabloids, in magazines, on television, where MPs, even church leaders, different leaders, celebrities in society commit adultery, and it's big news. Adultery is more common than you would think. In the 1950s, Dr. Kenzie produced what is called the Kenzie Report, and he said this, based on his research, he estimated approximately 50% of all married men in the 1950s admitted to having some extramarital sexual experience at some time in their married lives. 26% of women by the age of 40 had extramarital sex. That was 60 years ago. I suspect things have probably got worse in the last 60 years. So that's classic adultery, but Jesus isn't just talking about adultery in the way we all understand it outside of marriage. He's talking about a far bigger issue here. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman. He says, everyone. This means married or unmarried. Who looks at a woman. He didn't specify a married woman. He said, a woman. That means married or unmarried. I would also say that this principle applies to men and women. It's not just men looking at women. It's also women looking at men. That this principle is for married people and unmarried people, and it's for men and for women. Jesus is tackling a broader issue, which he calls adultery, and it's lust. In God's sight, lust is adultery. That's how broad it is. Jesus goes further than society would go. He goes further than religion goes. Much of society today would say, well, adultery is okay, it's acceptable, it happens, but as long as you're getting your needs met, and sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a release valve. That's oftentimes the approach that society has taken. Religion's approach was pretty weak. In Jesus' day, Jesus face, facing the Pharisees said, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you. See, the Pharisees purely looked at the letter of the law. The Pharisees said, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the law, the Old Testament law. That's good. But they just saw physically the technical act of committing adultery. But Jesus is saying it's not just the act. Remember last week we looked at murder. And he said, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. See, the Pharisees, their approach was this. As long as you don't kill someone, you haven't murdered them. As long as you don't literally physically go and be with someone who's married, then you haven't committed adultery. But Jesus goes far further than even religion goes. And he says, no, no. Even if you've thought anger in your heart, it's like murder in the sight of God. And even if you had lust in your heart, it is like adultery in the sight of God. Because the God who gave us this law is a spiritual lawgiver. And this God who gave us this law speaks not just to the bodies and the physical beings of man, he also speaks to the heart of man and the spirit of man. And therefore adultery is not just the physical act, it's the very intention of the heart. And this is what Jesus is driving home here. He goes so much further than the religious people would go. He goes so much further than the society went in his day. Jesus said, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he's doing here is he's taking the seventh commandment, which it says, 
uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He takes that, the seventh commandment, and he links it now with the tenth commandment, which says in Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. That's tough. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Oh, I like his ox. No. He's, say, he's linking here adultery with the 10th commandment, which is a bigger issue of the heart. Coveting. Wanting something that's not yours. Wanting to touch something that's forbidden. And he says that lust is adultery in the sight of God. Now, he's not saying that you cannot appreciate beauty. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you cannot look at someone and think, they look great. There's no problem there. God created beauty. Beauty is to be appreciated. He's not saying that. Someone once asked, what's the difference? You know, wh- when does it go from appreciating beauty into lust? You know, how long, uh, wh- what's, the, what's the difference? And someone once said, about two seconds. <laughs> Jesus said that, Everyone who looks, now the word looks, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her, the word looks there in the Greek language is, in a, is a present participle tense, which means not just to look, but to look and to look and to look and to continually look. That's what he's talking about here. So it's not just the glance and the appreciation, it's the continuing look and it's the agenda that you have when you're doing that. Um, he's also not saying that when you feel tempted that means you're sinning. He's not saying just because you feel the temptation, that's a sin. He's not saying that. I know he's not saying that because Jesus himself was tempted. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. If Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are, then it stands to reason he was tempted in the area of sexual lust. Yet he was without sin. So you need to know just because you feel temptation doesn't mean in that moment you're sinning. Depends where you're at on the inside in that moment as to whether you're sinning or not. You could say, well, how could Jesus be tempted? Because I can understand how I'm tempted because I'm a sinful human being. Therefore, I feel temptation. Jesus, however, didn't have a sinful nature. How could Jesus be tempted? Well, in the same way that Adam could be tempted. We're back at the beginning in the garden Adam had no sin, and yet in the perfect environment with a sinless nature, he was tempted and he sinned. The temptation is not the sin, it's what you do with the temptation that makes it sin or otherwise. As someone once said, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them building a nest in your hair. He's talking about the intention of the heart. Jesus said, person who lusts after a woman has already committed an adultery in his heart. It's not like in that moment from then on they're committing adultery. Jesus is indicating that even before the glance happens, the person who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery. It's as if what the issue is here is the intent that was in the heart before that glance or that second glance was made. It's what's going on in the soul. That's the issue. Now, lust has many impacts on our society. Here's two of them. First of all, it warps our view of beauty. 
Ephesians 4.22 says that we are to put off and discard our old, unrenewed self, which characterized your previous manner of life and becomes corrupt through lusts and desires that spring from delusion. Another translation says, the deceitfulness of lust. Lust is deceitful. It lies to people. It offers you something that is not available. It offers you an unreality that people so often buy into believing the lust. But it's a deception. Did you know that according to research, every one of us on a daily basis are bombarded by about 3,000 images from various types of media in our world. All the way from lightweight images that communicate right through to obscene images and almost pornographic images. Every day, all to do with beauty. 3,000 images come your way. They all communicate what beauty is. And this, this communication is not just going on in the Western world now. This communication is strongly going on on many of the developing parts of the world as well, where people's idea of what beauty is is being framed by what media says beauty is. According to Jean McConnell, who did a, a very strong presentation in the Veritas Forum, he said this, that models 20 years ago weighed on average 8% less than the average woman weighed. Today, models weigh 23% less than the average woman, and female models used in porn and the fashion industries only represent 2% of the population in terms of their weight. 98% of the population don't fit this extreme mold. And yet, this is the mold that 3,000 times a day is sent your way. 3,000 times a day is subconsciously being communicated to you that this is what beauty looks like, and it's the lust, the deceitfulness of lust, that has convinced us that that's beauty. But that was never how God spoke of beauty. And that was never how the Bible spoke of beauty. Jim McConnell, who I just quoted there, used to be a sex addict. In the height of his addiction, he was spending between three and six hundred dollars a week feeding his addiction at strip clubs and with pornographic material and videos and DVDs. He eventually was arrested for attempted rape and he served time in prison. Following on from all this, he had an encounter with God that changed his life. And uh, he now is involved with helping people come free from the sex industry in America. He brings multitudes of prostitutes out of brothels, and strip clubs, and helps them to get moving on with God and free from their past. But one of the defining moments in Gene McConnell's life came when one evening, it was a typical evening, his daughter, who was now in her teenage years, had gone out and she'd come back in. This is, this is while he was still struggling with his deep addiction issues. She'd gone out and then come back in. And she came back in, uh, rushed through the door, weeping. And she was bruised. And she was, her clothes were ripped. And she had a black eye. Her boyfriend had just dropped her. And she said, I've been raped. At this point, Jean McConnell, who had seen his daughter in the state, ran outside to try and get the guy as he was reversing rapidly down the driveway. He said he knew that if he'd got him, he'd have killed him. The guy managed to get away, and he got inside, and his daughter was weeping. And she said, I tried to stop him. I tried to stop him, but he kept coming after it. And then I just gave in. Gene McConnell thought to himself, how could anyone do this to my daughter? I hate that man. I want to kill him. How could anyone do this to my daughter? And in that moment, 
he heard a still voice the first time he ever heard God speak, saying, you've been doing this to my daughters for years. What the industries in this world do is they use form and appearance to market. And they sell us what is a false image of beauty. It's an unrealistic image of beauty. It's the deceitfulness of lust. And they sell us this as if this is the ideal. But what it does without realizing is it causes us to see people as objects of desire rather than as human beings created in the image of an awesome God. Human beings deserving of love. Human beings who have dads and mums and brothers and sisters who maybe been hurt, who have feelings. This unrealistic plastic world that we're being sold is not real and it's incredibly dangerous. The Bible, on the other hand, does depict for us beauty. You see, with Adam, his standard of measure as far as beauty was concerned was Eve, period. In the book of Song of Solomon, you find many descriptions of beauty, but there's no photographs of beauty in the Song of Solomon just wonderful, symbolic descriptions. And because it's symbolic descriptions of beauty you find in the Song of Solomon, anyone can imagine themselves as beautiful based on the descriptions the Bible gives us. Whereas if you compare yourself to photographs, you might fail. So that's one thing lust does. Also lust, and this is a far more devastating issue with lust, lust causes us to worship idols. You see, beauty should point us towards God. You know, if you go out on a, on a beautiful walk, you climb to the top of a mountain, and you're absolutely breathtaking by the scene in front of you, and you see mountain ranges, and you see lakes, and valleys, and trees, and you appreciate nature, what should that cause you to do? Worship God. You know, this is beautiful. And what does it cause you to do? Worship God. Equally, the beauty of someone in the opposite sex, whether it be a woman to a man appreciating handsomeness or a man to a woman appreciating beauty, should cause us to worship the God who gave that beauty. What sin has done is it's distorted that. Beauty was never meant to be an end in itself. Beauty was always meant to be a means to an end. And the end is to worship the creator, not the creation. This is what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Colossians 3 verse 5 puts it this way. It's sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What we're doing is we're worshiping things as idolatry. I don't, sure, you haven't carved an image out of a tree or something out of stone and you're bowing down to this false image. Idolatry is far bigger Idolatry is you worship anything, even in yourself, or a person, or a thing, or a job, or money. Anything you worship that takes your focus, that, that demands your attention, that you give your money to, that draws your, that allures you in a way that only God should have that effect in your life, and yet you're allowing other things to have that effect in your life. That's idolatry. And this is a massive issue. So what's God's solution to lust? I've got three solutions in a couple of weeks' time, we'll talk more specifically when Jesus talks about if your right hand causes you to sin, chop off. Wow, barbaric, strong. We'll touch on that verse, but we're going to talk more about that verse in two weeks' time. Talking about dealing with addictions in general. 
But let me just give you some big solutions, and I think these are the primary solutions that God gives us for dealing with lust. Solution number one, he's called Jesus. Jesus said, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Pharisees that Jesus was addressing, and this is what he was doing. He was saying, you've heard that it said, he's speaking about what the religious leaders said. What they were quoting from was right. They were quoting the Old Testament Ten Commandments. That's correct. But Jesus took issue with the way they applied it. They had a simplistic view of the Old Testament. They valued the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. They said, don't commit adultery. All right, we haven't done that. Not realizing that the spirit of the law says you can't even do it in your heart. What they had was an overly simplistic view of sin. And therefore, they had an overly simplistic view of salvation. They saw sin merely as what you do. And therefore, they saw salvation as merely what you can do to earn your way to God. But Jesus saw sin as not to do with what you do, although that's the manifestation of it. But it's to do with who you are and what you are on the inside and how you think and what you believe and the world on the inside, that's sin. And therefore, as far as Jesus is concerned, salvation, you being saved for all eternity and going to heaven and knowing God, that has nothing to do with your behavior. It's got everything to do with your internal world. Have you been born again? Have you come alive on the inside? Do you have a new heart? Have you connected with God on the inside? I don't care if you go through the motions of going to church on the outside, reading a book, the Bible, looking like you're praying. Do you know him? Are you connecting with him? So they had an overly simplistic view of sin, and they had an overly simplistic view of salvation. They saw sin purely as actions. Therefore, they saw salvation as purely could be earned by doing good things. But Jesus is saying, no, no, sin is internal, and therefore salvation is also internal. And he was driving this home. The question, therefore, is if Jesus is saying that it's not just whether you've actually physically caused adultery. Now, some of you have. Some of you have physically done the deed. And I hope you've confessed that to your spouse. But here's the bigger issue. And actually, in the sight of God, it's as bad, although the consequences might not be the same on this earth. But eternally speaking, the consequences are identical. That according to Jesus, lust equals adultery. Therefore, who is an adulterer? You are perverse. I am pervert. If my qualification for standing here to talk to you about this as sole subject is that I'm pure, then I've failed in this. I have not failed when it comes to physical adultery, but I've failed when it comes to internal adultery. I have lost it. You have lost it. Therefore, we will face judgment as adulterers before God. Jesus has raised the bar, so it seems. He says that if you've lusted, you've committed adultery, and if you have committed adultery, verse 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members and the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. 
If you've lusted, you've committed adultery, and the consequence is hell. So again, we find ourselves stripped completely of any self-righteous arguments that said, but I haven't done the act. God says, your intention is the same in my sight. We're stripped of self-righteousness. We find ourselves doomed, and we find ourselves asking, what's the way out? Solution number one, Jesus. You see, when you see words like that, I mean, it's strong. Right eye causes you to chop it out. You know, we'll, t- we'll expand that more in two weeks' time. Right hand causes you to cut it off. You think, no, come on. But if you have an eternal perspective on these issues, if you knew the reality and the scale of hell, then you would not in any way flinch from what Jesus is saying. You would be 100% in agreement with what Jesus is saying. You'd say, that's right. Hands, compared to all eternity, separated from God's. I mean, what's a hand? Your hand, with your eye, would pale into insignificance compared to the scale of the consequence of sin in humanity. Voltaire said this on his deathbed. I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. He said this to his doctor, Dr. Flockland, who said, that can't be done. And then Voltaire, as he died, said this, then I shall die and go to hell. He was saying, you know, in that moment, his money didn't count for a thing. He's, he's half my wealth. Give me more time. Counts for nothing. Sir Francis Newport, who used to be the head of the English Infidel Club, he was an atheist. He said this in his deathbed, you need not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one and I am in his presence. And you need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk. There is being no hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that I was to lie a thousand years upon the fire that could never be quenched to purchase favor of God and be united to him again. But it is fruitless wish. Millions of millions of years would bring me no nearer to the end of my torments than one poor hour. Oh, eternity, eternity, forever and forever. How insufferable pangs of hell. This man knew and understood. Do you know what? There's nothing I can do in this moment that will earn me out of this hell. It's oftentimes you get glimpses into the eternity ahead at the point of death. And for these people, it was devastating. Don't treat sin lightly. Am I doing this to freak you out? Yes. Is Jesus doing this to freak you out? Yes. You see, our society treats sin lightly. It treats it like an illness that needs to be treated. You know, if you've got an illness, well, I've, I, I guess it's not my fault. I've got this illness. Can you treat me? Psychologist says, don't come down hard on sin because it, it, it might suppress something in someone. Now, Jesus is barbarically ruthless with sin. You see, if you were in a dangerous place and you didn't know it, it, it's love that tells you you're in that dangerous place. Like a kid playing on the edge of cliffs. The kid's got no idea of the danger. I remember when we, when we first bought our Leith building, me and my friend Adrian, we, we screwed into the ceiling like a pole like this with a projector. And we, we, the curved ceiling, above the curved ceiling, there's another real roof. 
and we had a scaffolding, and it was a wobbly scaffolding. And we got off the top of this wobbly scaffolding, we popped a hole through the kind of curved ceiling, because there was a lowered ceiling in Leith at that time. Uh, we've removed it now. And we kind of went all the way up until we got to the concrete flat roof above. And by that point, we were above the lowered ceiling, and the lowered ceiling looked like this. It was only like a meter and a half below our feet. It felt like we could have stepped off the scaffolding and gone for a wee walk along our ceiling. But our ceiling was this thick. It, had this, it gave us this kind of strange, false sense of security that everything's going to be fine. But it was only this thick. And I think that's why people are living. They're living, with a, they're living like everything's fine. Just live for pleasure. Live for the now. We don't know if there's a God. It's his fault if we don't know he's there because he hasn't told, he hasn't turned up out of the sky and told. He has. And you're living like you're not accountable. But you are. And you're in a very dangerous place. You need God. You need saved. Hell is serious. And Jesus is serious. And God loves you. So on the one hand, it seems like he's raising the bar. But he's actually not. He's just telling us that like God has always seen it. As far as God's concerned, adultery has always been a case of the heart. Not just the actions. But then, the same Jesus, in another occurrence in the Gospels, seems like he's lowering the bar. Here's an instance in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. She wasn't thinking the thoughts, folks. She was doing the deed. They made her stands before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw the stone at her. He's now talking about the same kind of stuff. Sin isn't just the action. Sin's the intention. Who's he standing for? He's standing for the Pharisees. And he says in many other places, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look all pretty on the outside, but on the inside you're full of corruption. Jesus knew that they were as adulterous as anyone else on the inside. He said, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. And he also knew they had another agenda. Because how many people know it takes two to tango? There was only a lady here. Where's the guy? So they were, and the, Moses' law said, you've got to stone the guy and the girl. So they had, a, they had a clear agenda. So he said this. He said, if anyone is out of sin, let him throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the grounds. At this, those who heard this uh, began to go away. The older ones first. It's interesting, isn't it? Often age comes an awareness of truth. And they, they, they heard us and went away one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Folks, the law required her to be stoned. Deuteronomy 22, 22, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge evil from Israel. Here's Jesus saying, 
Sin is so barbaric, adultery is so barbaric, even the thought of it's wrong, cut your hand off or you'll go to hell. And now he's letting a lady off with it who's actually done the deed, not just thought the thought, but done the deed. Has he got double standards? It seems in one hand he's raising the bar, now it seems in another hand he's lowering the bar. But as I said earlier, the bar has never been needed to be raised. God's always had that standard and the bar never needed lower because God has always desired to show mercy. And here we find Jesus. You see, who is Jesus? Well, he was the only one who was without sin in that crowd. Furthermore, I believe he's God. I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the God who made everything in the flesh, not just a man, but God. Therefore, I believe that the very law that Moses wrote, that God gave him, Jesus gave him. I believe that the very one who's now writing in the finger with the sand was the same hands that wrote the commands, inspired by Jesus himself. The punishment was from God. And now here, God, the same God who instigated the punishment, is the one qualified to bring the judgment. But he doesn't. He says this, neither do I condemn you. So is he violating his own commands? The only reason he could say, neither do I condemn you, was because not long after that, he was condemned for her. Jesus went on at the end of his ministry to hang and die on a cross. And as he hung and died on that cross, he was condemned for that lady. He took the punishment she deserved. Furthermore, he took the punishment you deserve and I deserve. He took your sins, your hell, the severity of the punishment. It is severe. Eternal hell. You cannot get more severe than that. And yet the magnitude of what took place 2,000 years ago was this, that God, the creator of all things, took on flesh and he died on the cross. It was divine blood that was being shed, folks. And he died in your place. Do you understand the scale of that? Not just the man here, God. The scale of that's huge. That event 2,000 years ago on the cross, him dying in your place, he becomes your substitute. So here's the deal. Either you die and pay the price for your own sins or you accept Jesus died and took the price for you. I believe that's the gospel. That's the truth. You need saved. And the only way you can be saved is by coming to Jesus and saying, would you save me? And he'll say, yes. Let him be your savior. Dr. Claude Barlow was a well-known missionary to China. He was spending many years among the Chinese people, sharing with them the gospel and helping build churches. During his time there, a horrible disease started breaking out among the people he so dearly loved. No cure was found for this disease. So he started, and there was no places where laboratories or research could be done. It was very primitive, the area he lived in. So he started keeping his own notes and journaling about this disease and doing his own research. And he managed to get a sample of this disease, and he traveled back to the United States to John Hopkins University. And before arriving at John Hopkins University, he took the disease into himself. And he arrived at John Hopkins University where he had studied and he submitted himself to the professors and he asked them to research him as their patient to come up with the cure. And he showed them his journals and here he was, the disease was in his body and they cured him with their modern techniques and abilities. Having been cured, he had the anecdote and he took it back with him to China and he saved thousands if not millions from sure death. When he was asked about this, 
he said this, anyone would have done the same. I happened to be in the position of vantage that I had the chance to offer my body. You see, no one else could have saved us because everyone else was in the same predicament as us. But Jesus, the one without sin, is the one who could save us and who did save us by dying in our place, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. So here's the first thing. Solution number one, you need Jesus. If you haven't been saved, if you haven't given your life to him, accept him, believe in him, let him change you. He rose from the dead, he's alive right now, and he's very in love with you and able to save you. Second solution is this, a healthy marriage. A healthy marriage. This is really practical. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2. This is the Apostle Paul giving advice. Since there is so much immorality... Each one should have his own wife and each woman have her own husbands. While that's a good bit of advice, I suggest you don't propose that way. Listen, honey, everyone's having sex and I'm really all sexually frustrated. Would you marry me? (laughs) No, that's not going to go down. Well, you can try it, but I I don't think it'll go down well. If she's as desperate as you are, she'll say yes, but typically that wouldn't work. Then it goes on. Now, how, now, you, now she has said yes. Paul goes on and says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because your lack of self-control. That's amazing. He knows you guys. <laughs> Incredible. So the Bible here says that you can be tempted because of your lack of self-control. And if you're in a marriage... You see, before marriage, keep the off button on, off. Keep it switched off. Don't even trigger that button. But when you get married, flick the switch and let yourself go in that area. As I've said at the beginning, God's pro-sex. He made it. He made it fun. He gives us a whole book in the Bible talking about it. He sh- it should be fun for the man and the woman. It should be a love-motivated thing rather than a lust-motivated thing. There's a whole lot more things we could say about that. But you need to know God's interested in sex and God created sex. And now he's saying, do you know what? The way you outwork your sexual desire is in marriage. Don't do it like the rest of the world. Everyone's just sleeping around. Repent if you're doing that. You are sinning. If you are having sex outside of marriage, you're sinning. God created you to fall in love and get married. If he's just saying, oh no, listen, we've got to try before you buy. Listen, you're not an object to be bought. It's not like he found you on a shelf. You're not an object to be bought. You're a human being. If he wants the benefits, then how about the commitment, right? Put a bit of rock on your finger. Underwrite your bills. Get him to commit to you for the rest of your life. Oh, but I love you. I just don't want to commit rubbish. He's lying. Dump him. So you need to get yourself married, I'd suggest. You're clapping, but the person I'm speaking to is sitting there slumping in the seat. <laughs> thinking, I hope no one didn't notice I didn't clap. <laughs> now, you know who you are. Repent. You need to get yourself married. If he's, if he's the right guy, if he's going the same way as you in life, you're living for Jesus together, um, but make sure you're doing things right. Get married. That's good. If you're not married... 
You should think about getting married. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Church, incidentally, is the best place to meet someone. Absolutely. You know, you've got to meet someone somewhere. How much, what a better context and an environment where people at least hear because they're saying, do you know what? I want to make a difference in my life. I want to serve God. It doesn't mean you're all perfect, but it doesn't mean you're on a journey and at least you're pointing the right direction by the very virtue of the fact your bums are in the seats in this auditorium. It's a good place to meet people, but not to stalk people. That's the other extreme. <laughs> Get married. And Paul says, now you're married, have regular sex in marriage. That's so important. That the regularity needs to be there. That you need to love each other. You need to demonstrate that love, that physical love to each other as well as other types of love. And it has to go much more than just physical. And in husbands, it's not just enough for you to get what you want in the marriage. You've got to give her what she wants as well. It's important that every, but the whole thing is never use sex as a threat. Never deny sex as a punishment. Uh, ne- never, never use sex in a manipulative way. You always should be used in a loving way. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. You should find ultimate satisfaction in your marriage. Sexual, joyous satisfaction. If you don't, Socrates says this, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) That might help some of you. I found my calling. Here's a bigger issue. This is my third solution and final solution. You must make sure, first of all, you get saved. That deals with the eternal issue. Now, in, the, in this life, getting married is going to help you overcome sex and lust. Not overcome sex. Get sex and overcome lust. But in terms of your ultimate hope, your ultimate hope cannot be your spouse. Your ultimate hope and your ultimate satisfaction must come from God. So I want to encourage you finally to live for God. The word lust that Jesus used in the Greek language is the Greek words epithemo, which means, it comes from two Greek words, epi and themos. Epi means upon, themos means passion. It, it doesn't just mean that you're, like you're thirsty, it means that you're, you have an obsessive desire. It's, it's, not, it's, it's more than just a, a light passion, it's an intense passion. It's you have a passion upon something. You've placed your passion on something. The question is, what is your passion on? Lust is such a big issue that people have tried to combat it in different ways through the generations. Stoics and Buddhists have approached it this way, that all desire is evil and wrong and will lead to frustration. That's, they're saying deny desire completely. Buddha said this, what is the root of evil? Desire is the root of evil. And he encouraged his followers to deny all desire. It's a good insight that desires can lead to evil, but it's the wrong solution. Islam, their solution to lust is to cover their woman up. In the Quran, it says this, tell your wives and daughters and believing women to draw their outer garments around them uh, for wh- when they go out or are among men. But is that not to deny beauty? And is that not to kill freedom? Jesus' solution is this. Jesus gets into conversation one day in John's gospel, chapter four, 
with a, a female sex addict. She's a woman from Samaria, and there they are at a particular well, Jacob's well in Samaria. And he gets into conversation with her. God tells Jesus about her life, and he says, you've been married five times, and the man you're sleeping with and having sex with and cohabiting with is currently is not your husband. Jesus has never met her before, and now she's blown away. Now she, Jesus has got her attention, and she realizes that this might well be the Christ. And then Jesus goes on and says this, you've been pursuing all these relationships. And then he uses the illustration of the well that they're standing beside. And he says, listen, you're here, you're here to get water and you, that water's not going to satisfy you. He says this, John 4, verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But indeed, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. Jesus' response to her was, you need a better satisfaction. Notice she had gone for relationship after relationship after relationship, seeking satisfaction in life and getting none. What did Jesus do? Well, he didn't do what most religious people would do by coming down on her like a ton of bricks. What he did instead was this. The root issue in your life is you're seeking satisfaction, but you're seeking it in the wrong places. Now, would you come to me? Jesus said, and you will find satisfaction in me. And Jesus Christ offers satisfaction. I believe the solution isn't in sex. The solution is in God. I don't believe you are made for sex. You are made for God. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body was not made, was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And here's the thing. It's not just enough to say, I'm not going to lust. What you need to do is you need to get a bigger passion in your life. You need to place your passions upon something else, someone else. You need to pursue God. Pursue him actively. Let him fill your horizons. Let him be the reason you get up in the morning. Let his passion for the church, let his passion for the city grip you. Live purposeful lives that make a difference in his name. Let that become your agenda and then all other agendas start paling to insignificance. You see, not only is it you start focusing on him, but his spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. See, Islam doesn't offer you the Holy Spirit. But when you come to Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your heart. When the Holy Spirit's in you, it says in Romans 8, 2, and 13 and 14, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Here the Bible reveals that the Holy Spirit can take up residence in your life. And I want to say to you, and this, this, to be honest, is one of the biggest keys to you overcoming. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live at a different level. He empowers you to overcome In a few weeks' time, I'll talk about practical things you can deal with addictions with. But ultimately, the way to overcome all addictions, all issues, all practices, all mindsets, all things you're struggling with, is the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what it says. It says that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's like you see an airplane, that huge airplane 
possibly hundreds of tons of weight. And it's on that, on that airstrip, and you think, how on earth is that thing going to go up? Because the weight of it. You know gravity keeps you down. And this thing's hundreds of tons, and it's solidly planted in the ground. So there is a law at work keeping it down. Just as in our lives, there is a law in our fallen nature that tries to keep you down when it comes to sin. But here it is overcome because a greater law starts to work. Another law kicks in. They've got law of gravity. We know that. But now we see the law of aerodynamics and thrust. The engines kick in. The aerodynamics start to have an effect on the winds. And before you realize it, gravity is overcome because a second law which is greater has overcome it. And aerodynamics and thrust kick in. And that plane, hundreds of tons worth of it, go up into the air. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and starts to fill you, and starts to empower you, that encounter, that ongoing encounter is what will empower you to overcome on a regular basis. God wants you free. And by his power, you can live free. Let's pray. Okay, just take a moment in God's presence. The Bible's amazing. It tells us Every sin can be forgiven. You might be sitting here today with a great cloud of guilt and condemnation over your life because of big mistakes you've made. And you know what? They're big. And they may still have consequences. But we serve a God who forgives. And a God who not only forgives, but a God who also empowers you to live free. Just in his presence, confess to him. If you've sinned, confess to him. And now, just as you've confessed to him, right now in his presence, receive his complete forgiveness. Not because it wasn't bad, but because of what he did in the cross, you can be forgiven. Receive his forgiveness. God, I want to thank you that you're interested not on the outside, but on the inside. You're interested in the intentions of our heart. God, I want to thank you that you love people. You have a plan for people. God, even in the way you've made us, it tells us clearly there's a God in heaven who loves us. The physical way we're made. God, we realize that sex is not a sinful thing. It's been created by you. But because of sin... Sex has become distorted. And for many people, it's become their God. For many people, it fills the horizon more than you do. And I pray, God, for each one of us here that we would live free, that we would live honoring to you in private, in public, in our hearts, in our physicalness, in our singleness, with our spouses until one day we stand before you and meet you face to face. Just while we're praying, there might be some people here today and while I've been talking about sex, the biggest issue is what I touched on earlier, is that whether it's lust or whether it's any sin, 
without God, you're lost. And I don't believe you will go to heaven. But the good news is that Jesus took your punishment for you. And if you're willing to accept him and embrace him as your savior and live for him with your life, then you have heaven, you have eternity, you will experience forgiveness, and most of all, you will come into a relationship with the heavenly father. And that means everything. If that's you today, you're saying, Peter, I need God in my life, I need saved, then right now I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make that decision. And in this moment, I believe God will meet you. So that's you. Just pray this prayer with me just now. Let this be your prayer of commitment to him. Just under your breath, repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. I realize that I'm a sinful person. And I've tried to live life without you for so long. But today I'm choosing to follow you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven for all my sin. Thank you, you rose again from the dead and that you're alive now. Today I ask for forgiveness. I ask for a new star. And Jesus, I declare you to be my Lord from this day forward. Thanks for hearing my prayer and for accepting me. Okay, keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I believe God heard you. Just while everyone else is praying, I would like the privilege of praying for you. If you prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, can you just do a very simple thing? Just where you're sitting, can you quickly raise your hand up high and then put it down again? Let me know you prayed that prayer and then I'll pray. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Put your hand up clear so I can see it. I'm going to pray. Thank you. Anyone else? Right, God, I pray for my dear friends today. In your presence, they've made this decision. God, they've asked you for forgiveness and your Bible says that when they do that, you grant it. They've acknowledged you as the Lord and they, they want to live for you now, God. And I believe because of these things that they're yours. And I pray that this would be the beginning of a new life for them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd fill them now, so full. Help them to plug into the good church so they grow in their faith. Help them to let this be the beginning of a whole new life, walking with God until one day they stand before you and meet you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship. At the end of the service, it might be that whether you're struggling or whether you're not struggling, we all need the power of the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you, come, come forward at the end. There's opportunity always at the end to be prayed for if you're sick. But also if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, or filled again with the Holy Spirit, come forward. There'll be some leaders available to pray with you. 
And I believe this is one of the greatest keys to overcoming. So whether you are needing to overcome or whether you feel like you're doing fine, come and receive more of the Holy Spirit. Get one of the leaders to pray with you and expect God to touch you. My friends who put their hand up at the end, that was a great decision you made. I believe God heard you. And before you go, I'm going to get one of the prayer team just to come and say hi to you and offer to pray with you again if you'd like that. All right, let's worship God.